Hello and welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my five-year-old daughter. Series six of the podcast is focused on solo parenthood stories and speaking to a range of solo mums about their path to parenthood. Before we get into today's episode, did you know that I offer individual and group coaching courses? I cover those considering this path to parenthood, those who are pregnant, as well as those who are looking to thrive as solo parents and have really confident conversations with our children and also those around us. If you are interested in coaching, check out more information on thestalkandi.com forward slash group coaching. Over on the Thriving Solo podcast this month, I speak to the Money Fox all about our finances, preparing to be a solo parent and being a solo parent, how to manage our money, how to increase our incomings, decrease our outgoings, how to make a budget, all really practical, great advice. I really recommend a listen. And now for today's episode with solo parent Jess. Jess, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we start with the interview, would you like to give yourself a bit of an introduction? Yeah, absolutely fine. My name's Jess and I'm a very new solo mum. I've got a daughter, Effie, who is nine weeks old and I'm living out in Thailand. So I'm a teacher out here. So um, an expat mum as a solo mum. Perfect. So should we start right back at the beginning in terms of when did you start considering solo parenthood? Yeah, definitely. Well, I've always wanted to be a mum. <laughs> it's been in my blood since I've been tiny, typical little girl with all of the dolls, desperate to be a mum. I was told from a young age, very early teens, that I had PCOS um, and a few other things. And I was kind of told not to leave it too late and always thought at the time, obviously, as a young teenager, oh, I've got years. I don't need to be to be worrying about that or thinking about that yet. And then all of a sudden, my, my 30s were here and I thought, oh, I do need to be thinking about it. How does, how does it happen? How does it, they just, they just exactly. somehow yeah, it, appear, don't they? It does. All of a sudden it's it's here and it's just like, how? Yeah, exactly that. And uh, and just kind of from different relationships, you know, I'd always thought that I'd find the right person to do it with. Um, and just timings, really. Always thought, you know, you go into a relationship, you think, oh, well, you need a, a few years to get to know somebody before you kind of think about settling down and having children. And each time that I'd got to that point with someone, uh, it's kind of for one reason or another we dri- we drifted apart so all of a sudden I found myself in my mid-30s really wanting children and thinking you know why why am I waiting for this and and as an expat as well I'm in a financial position I'm living in Thailand and you know childcare is affordable financially you know cost of living is lower out here so I was just in a position that I'd be able to try it in a, a position that I probably wouldn't have been in as you know a solo person as a teacher back home in England so I just thought you know it's it's kind of now or never really. So when did you become um, an expat when did you start living abroad were you dating when you were away? Yeah so I became an expat 10 years ago I'm going into my 11th year so I'm 35 now so I was 25 when I first or 24 I remember when I first moved away and have been in I would say two or three kind of 
relationships of about three or four years since moving away so yeah each time I thought you know this is it this is the person that I'll end up having a child with and then you know it hasn't been I think it's it's interesting and I, I ask because I lived abroad for seven years and a lot of people I've interviewed or spoken to have also had time abroad and I do wonder whether the decision to move abroad meant that it was harder for me to meet somebody. On the one hand, I think, well, there's probably less people, but the pool of people that there were in the dating, on the dating scene were more like-minded. So there was more likely I'd meet somebody. I don't know. I just sometimes think about it because I think something that a lot of people in this community have in common is they do seem to have spent some time abroad. And Yeah, I think it comes into it, definitely. I know a lot of my friends, their reasons for moving home have been to kind of try and settle down um, and, and meet somebody. I don't know if it makes a difference, but I've dated women and I'm not sure whether, I mean, certainly the pool is no bigger abroad of, of women than it is for men, but I don't know. Maybe you find yourself, if you're dating a women more likely abroad to dating a woman abroad to kind of meet somebody that's up to a similar stage and wanting wanting similar things I don't know yeah. certainly out, out here in Asia not all the time but a lot of the western men find themselves very attracted to the the local women and I know that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but it can be very frustrating for the western women because their pool of kind of men gets smaller and smaller and smaller because the local men want local women and then the the western men also want the local women as I say not not always the case but I think that that can be quite frustrating for some so certainly a lot of my friends that's been their reason for moving home and some of them have moved home met somebody and then moved abroad again um, and now have you know lovely lives abroad together but I definitely think it comes into it I think that regardless of kind of meeting someone or not the kind of wanting to travel and to do lots with your life before kind of settling down and having children definitely comes yeah comes into it and what was your what did you presume would happen in your life and how difficult was that to let go of I think I just always thought that I would meet someone and kind of settle down, get married, start a family together. Uh, I'm very realistic, like I'm from, you know, a family, my parents are, you know, not together and many, many other people in kind of my social circles are no longer, you know, their parents are no longer together. So I've always been quite realistic, but just didn't think that I'd be at this point where I'd still not have met someone in, in my mid-30s. And I suppose I've been at the point where I thought I had met someone. I think that's a big thing, that I haven't just kind of dated and never really found someone. I would say two or three times I've met someone, I thought, you know, this is going to be it. And then for one reason or another, you know, it hasn't been. And my actual, my most recent relationship before going through IVF was with someone. Um, and the reason we kind of decided not, not to remain together is that she didn't want children and I did. And we kind of knew it from the beginning but we thought oh it might change one of us might change our minds and and it it just didn't shift so um that was kind of my end point of right I'm going to stop just focusing on dating and trying to meet someone and focus on what I want and I know I want a child so that that became my priority it's a particular tough situation that one isn't it when you wouldn't have ended a relationship if it wasn't for that reason it's then yeah. presumably very challenging to end that relationship because it's just different definitely and you keep thinking oh what if you know what if this what if that and, and the, the chances are you never know it might have, it might have ended for other reasons anyway 
and looking back you think oh yeah it could have done for this reason or it could have done for that reason but at the time that was kind of that was the main reason and um, we were kind of toing and froing with it and then I just had to think no what 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 do I definitely want from life and am I going to have regrets and I knew that if if I didn't try then you know the regrets would be there and and you know being in my mid-30s and being told you know you shouldn't be leaving it too much longer every time I'd go to the doctors it would be it would be mentioned so I just thought I'm, I'm going to go for it. And I think it's uh, it's really interesting for people to hear this conversation as well, because I know so many people say, why did I stay for so long? And then in hindsight, yeah. feeling like they've wasted time because really, honestly, probably for some people, a couple of years have passed where they knew the end goal wasn't the same. They knew mm-hmm. they didn't want the same things. And so it it takes quite a lot to know yourself and say I have to make this difficult decision because it's really what I want and it's going to help me achieve my goals did you how did you make that decision was it based on knowing you just wanted to achieve your yeah it was knowing that and also friends and family being great and you know they they loved my previous partner but they were also like you you know what you've wanted all of this time kind of keep that keep that goal in mind and it wasn't a decision that any of us took lightly you know we both sought out you know extra help chatting to someone and trying to you know really think about life goals and and what we wanted from things and just at the end of the day we knew that we we needed to go in in different directions and looking back now you know that was only I don't know just over a year ago and it it was the best it sounds awful but the best decision ever because you know look what's come from it for me yeah and so once you'd made that decision, how quickly did you then start thinking, okay, so what are my options? Really quickly, because I'd, I'd looked into um, options with IVF abroad years and years earlier. Um, I'd actually, you know, contacted different clinics. I'd already had tests done at Manchester Fertility Clinic one time when I was at home so I was already I kind of started the process and was almost just having a few years of holding it whilst waiting and seeing what was happening so and as I say we it wasn't just a you know a fast decision we'd kind of been on and off for about a year of you know deciding what to do and then when we kind of finalized that in the in the February I started my IVF in the I want to say about the April May time. So you went, you 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 knew what you wanted, and you went quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. And so, what considerations were there having treatment in uh, abroad in a different country for you? Gosh, a lot. I mean, for me, being away from family was always going to be a huge thing. I'm really close with my family. My sister's got two children, so I've got a niece and nephew back. But also not just kind of deciding to raise children abroad, but having the support of family if things weren't to be successful or if things were to be successful and then not, you know, if anything was to go wrong. So it was a huge decision to it abroad, but it came down mainly to one, loving my life out here, but two the affordability factor now IVF is certainly no cheaper my journey's probably ended up being far more expensive than it would have been back home but knowing that to actually have a baby and then be able to continue working I mean I can't imagine being back in the UK right now and I mean out here I'm actually returning to work this week which is crazy the maternity leave is so short out here in Thailand so that's definitely a downside but back home, the thought of going back and teaching full time with a nine week baby and then how to then pay for childcare or anything else, like it just didn't seem 
yeah, doable. And for a long time, I didn't think it was going to be possible out here. So one of the reasons I was putting it off, because as I say, I looked into it years ago. Um, and one of the reasons I put it off was me thinking, you know, I'll just do a few more years out here and then I'll move home and do it. And then kind of the situation changed slightly out here. Uh, so IVF, unfortunately, at the moment, isn't available in Thailand, apart from for married couples. So even an unmarried straight couple, unfortunately, can't access IVF, let alone single. So I just always thought, even though Thailand was so ahead in other ways, I just kind of wrote it off a little bit. I'd contacted lots of clinics years ago. I used to live in Vietnam as well. So I tried both Vietnam and Thailand. And then I think during COVID, there must have been a lack of international clients coming in. And, you know, so I think something must have changed because they became a bit more flexible. They took, you know, they bent their rules a little bit. And all of a sudden I was receiving a few phone calls saying, are you still interested? Wow. So, so that's how, it, you know, it ended up working. I was really, really lucky. I had a known donor who I was going to use as well. Known but remaining anonymous in terms of with family and friends and things. Things. we've got our own agreement but I think that's what helped me out here because had I not had that I don't think there's the option to kind of ship sperm in or anything like that because of it being usually not not available to singles or you know solo parents or unmarried couples or anything like that so that's how it worked out for me really and it's all been you know an absolute shock because I didn't I just didn't think it was going to be an option and then all of a sudden it was and I don't know how much you want to share, but how did the known donor arrangement come about? Because I know it's something that a lot of people are really interested in pursuing, but it's but it's sometimes quite challenging. Yeah, definitely. And I won't I won't share too much because, as I say, he we're keeping it anonymous. But he's somebody who I've been in touch with for years. At, you know, as that as an option. But it was a case of well, whilst I'm abroad, you know, we didn't think it was possible. And he kept saying, "Well, if ever you find that it is possible, I'm here and I'm I'm willing to help you out." And he he's British and he's helped a couple of families already in. England so he'd gone through the counselling program and and on all of the tests he obviously he redid the tests and everything out here anyway but we then had a contract written up now obviously it's not necessarily a legally binding contract but it was just an agreement between the two of us that he's very much donor he's not dad he will won't be dad um and you know I'm not going to turn around one day and request money he's not going to turn around one day and request custody so it was kind of it's based on trust really our agreement but it's there for us to both refer to I suppose if any of us ever get confused about you know what we've what we've agreed to but we've met you know we've met up to discuss what what this could look like how it would be and he was just absolutely fabulous he was very uh, centered around what was good for the child not what he was getting out of it not what I was getting out for it, of it his reasons were very much he comes from a large family um for one reason or another he's not ended up having a family of his own but he was happy to kind of help others achieve their dreams and their goals just like a really really kind person um willing to help me and and when we met the 
you know, when we met up to discuss it, the conversation around what this could look like for a child um, was so important to me because he was saying he was happy sending photos that the child kind of understood if I wanted to make a baby book, you know, this is your donor, this is the, you know, this is the man that helped me have you if ever I wanted them to meet, anything that the kind of what the child wanted as the child grows up, if they want contact, that's all fine as long as that terminology from the beginning, as long as there's been that honesty, it's very much donor rather than father. So it was kind of, you know, when we were discussing it, it was almost like an interview between the two of us, like a two-way process. Because I think he, when he's helped certain people before, it's it's not felt right if, if you know, they've not been looking for the same things out of it. So it was important that he felt that, you know, I understood what you know what he was helping me with and for me it was you know important that he wasn't looking for more than than yeah just being the donor. Brilliant and and you know so many donor conceived people that I have interviewed have said that it would be the best situation if their donor was a known donor so that if they decided they wanted to pursue a relationship later on then that was possible so it's a great situation hopefully for your daughter because yeah. she can sort of leave that a little bit but Definitely. I think it, it also gives some reassurance when someone's done it before because you've sort of got a bit of a benchmark in okay well this is how that went so yeah you know, there's a bit of reassurance there isn't there I think yeah and to know that you know he's not helped a, a family previously and then all of a sudden kind of had this heart pull and thought oh my gosh that's my child or you know I know that it's for both sides it, it's worked successfully you know and yeah it just it just filled me with ease when we were talking about about the situation I just felt it was the right thing to do because obviously moving home and doing it the chances are it, I would have been using an anonymous donor and it would have probably been very different so that's that's kind of been a perfect situation for me I was fortunate enough to have three embryos so I've got two others frozen and also more of his sperm if I needed more rounds in the future if I wanted siblings for, for little Effie Amazing. So on that then, so you went straight to IVF. What was the process like for you? To be honest, I was so I was optimistic about the whole thing, but I was also really realistic. So I didn't allow myself to think kind of, oh, this time next year, it might look like this. I was always just kind of, I wanted very much to continue my life as it you know as it was already and so I was kind of going for appointments alongside work and holidays and and everything else and a few years ago I'd had to have a small operation on my uterus because because of polycystic ovaries I'd had such irregular periods and I think there'd been so much build-up that my uterus lining had just got so thick that in one of my checks they'd said oh it's in a kind of pre-cancerous condition we need to we need to operate so I'd had that done a few years ago now ironically then when I started the IVF treatment my lining was too thin so it's just really really frustrating so I'd gone through all of the the injections and the treatment and I'd been fortunate I think it it was 16 eggs that I got, but by the time it was, you know, developed into embryos, there were three embryos. So then I was due to transfer before the summer holidays last year um, and my lining was too thin. So the transfer got cancelled. So I went off, tried to just enjoy my holidays. Um, and then when I returned, 
I went back for another transfer and luckily throughout the you know the meds and everything that I was taking at the time my transfer my sorry my lining had got a bit thicker so she said oh it's still a little bit thin but it should be it should be okay so we'll go ahead so we I can't remember the dates or the timeline but we were going ahead and I returned for a check just before the transfer and she said have you been bleeding and I was like no and she said, I don't know how this has happened, but somehow your lining has got thinner since your last check. She says, I've not seen this before, but your lining's thin again. And I have to be honest, I've never had success. Now, I can't remember how, what the thickness was, but the doctor said she hadn't had success before with a transfer with that lining. So I was absolutely heartbroken thinking, oh, you know, I've already been for a few checks and each time the lining has been too thin. So we ummed and ahed about whether to cancel it. And the doctor said, well, we can cancel, but my fear is, is that next month you'll come back and you'll have paid for another round of all of the meds and everything, and it will just be the same. So I had three embryos, and I can't remember the gradings, but there was two that were slightly stronger and one that was weaker. So the, the original plan was for her to, the doctor, to transfer the strongest embryo. But what she said at this point was, because the chances are so slim, why don't we try a transfer, but actually use your weakest embryo and almost see it like a trial, see how your body reacts to the transfer, you know, if it rejects it, at what point, all of this. So that's what we did. So we used the the weakest embryo. Uh, now, here in Thailand, when I'd done the PGs, PGT or PGS, the testing, yeah. they they tell you what gender the, the embryos are so I knew from the get-go which I know some countries do some don't but I knew the the gender of the embryos so the, the second I knew we were using the weakest embryo I knew that that was a female I knew that that was a girl which is strange because I, I then I didn't share that information I told my family at Christmas as like a surprise but I, at the time I was so kind of not wanting to think ahead not wanting to think of this like embryo as, as a child or anything so yeah, so we transferred the weakest one and I wasn't getting my hopes up. I was returning back to work after the summer holidays, being a bit cautious to kind of not be moving too much furniture or anything like that, but also just not, not thinking too far ahead. And I was really open with everybody that I was going through it. Now, I don't know whether I do the same with future transfers, but certainly that first time around and doing it out here on my own, I just wanted people to know. And I wanted, you know, if things didn't go to plan, I wanted people to be there for me. So I was really honest that people were great around me. And then, yeah, at my first checkup, my blood suggested that I was pregnant. And again, I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, I was not wanting to get too excited. But then with each with each future appointment, it just became more real. And at three months, I think it was, I transferred from my clinic, from my IVF clinic to the hospital. And at that point, that's when things became real because the clinic, even the way that the doctor and the staff had been talking to me, it was very much Let's see, kind of if this is a successful yeah. pregnancy, you know, if you give birth successfully, if, 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 and at the point I transferred to the hospital, that kind of that language changed and it was all being right. spoken about, like, this is actually happening. Yeah. So that's when it became real for me and then coincided with me coming home to the UK for Christmas and telling people there it was a girl and yeah, then it just, 
it became it became real. So I I you know I know how fortunate I was um, for that first transfer to work. As I say, from three embryos, I was you know I was so lucky to have three. I know some people don't even get that, but you also hear of people having far more than three embryos and then not having a successful transfer. So when I had three, I was kind of thinking, you know, hopefully this will result in a successful pregnancy, but I need to be realistic. It might not. So for the first transfer to work, and as I say, for it to be kind of the, the underdog of the of the embryos um, for the for the clinic to not have had success like that before was yeah pretty amazing and quite nice for you as well because if you are thinking of trying for a sibling feeling like you've almost got the two more embryos yeah. that were the highest grade hopefully gives you a bit you know a yeah chance. definitely did you have anybody with you you know when when you were uh, giving birth did you have a birth partner or did you do it on your own yeah so I adopted well interestingly I adopted so yes and no I adopted for a doula so out here the kind of the support and the prep it's all private services that you pay for rather than back home but there was lots of kind of birth prep classes there's a local cafe for mums and tots and babies run by a midwife from Ireland and a lot of the classes there are um, run by doulas and they offer advice for things and a place just to kind of meet up through pregnancy, but also then, you know, post-pregnancy with children. So I'd um, met a doula who I absolutely loved, opted to have her help. Now we hadn't even, we'd met because of the birth classes, which are kind of group classes, but we hadn't actually met yet to go through all of my birth preferences uh, because we'd always said we'll meet three weeks before my due date and the number knows to me <laughs> at the time babe was going to make an early an early appearance yeah. so unfortunately Rassi my dealer she was able to come to the hospital and be a support but here at the hospital they wouldn't allow other than husbands, they wouldn't allow anybody into the surgery. So even if Rassi had been my legal partner or my mum or my sister, she wouldn't have been allowed in the room with me. So she wasn't allowed in the room at my C-section. She also wasn't allowed in the recovery room with me or in the room with the baby. So we finally got together a few hours later after my recovery when I was then in kind of my the the room that I spent the next couple of days in but I I think she found it more frustrating than me really because she knew that she had a client that was paying and you know she felt a bit helpless not able to do anything whereas for me it was all just so rushed in the end and I was just so kind of wanting this baby to come and it'd be safe that it didn't really matter to me who was in the room I wouldn't be able to tell you how many doctors or nurses were there it was yeah I was in my own little world at the time and how do you remember how they were sort of telling you that she wouldn't be allowed in? Were, were they apologetic or were they like, no, this is just the rules? It was just very factual, yeah. So it was the night before. Uh, so on, I gave birth on a Friday and it was on the Thursday. And when we talk about like birth choices and expectations versus reality, I've been doing all these birth classes I'd really planned on a natural, unmedicated birth. Again, I was kind of realistic that that might not happen. But if anybody asked me about my preferences, that's what I was aiming for. So an unmedicated birth with a doula present. And on the Thursday, I was here. It was the Easter holidays or Songkran, we call it here. The Songkran holidays. 
I was in my pool at my condo. I was reading my hypnobirthing book. It's so ironic looking back. I was really chill thinking, you know, everything's going really well with this pregnancy. I'm reading my hypnobirthing book. I'm feeling really empowered, really ready for this natural pregnancy. And it was that evening that I just went for a standard checkup. At that point, I was having, because it was my last few weeks, I was having weekly checks. I think here in Thailand, they probably do a few more checks throughout the pregnancy anyway. But then in my final uh, few weeks, my blood pressure was very high. So they'd said I was at risk for preeclampsia. But at the time, there were no other symptoms, no other signs. So they just needed to kind of keep a close eye. So the Thursday evening was just a routine check. And I was there feeling really chilled after my day at the pool, went in and the procedure at the hospital was always the same. You'd do a urine um, sample so that they could check because protein in the urine would be like another sign of um, preeclampsia. So I do a, a urine test. I then go through with the doctor and have my scan. And then whilst we're chatting about the scan, the nurse usually popped her head around and said, oh, urine test is fine. You know, and then I'd, I'd go home happily on my way. So on this Thursday, I'm there, I'm having my scan. And for the first time, I said, is it okay if I record it? And she said, yeah, no problem. So I'm recording the images of the scan on the screen. And I'm talking away to my family saying, here we are, three weeks to go. Baby's doing well. No signs of her coming early. Here she is. And then finished that recording, sat down with the doctor. And as we're just kind of chatting, in comes the nurse and says, oh, there's now protein in the urine. Uh, and that was that. Then they were sending me for different blood tests and, and other things to kind of confirm like how serious it was. And and the outcome was, yep, yeah, baby needs to come and she needs to come now. Now here in Thailand, it's it's very, very common to have C-sections anyway. And it's also very common for the doctors to push for C-sections. So I had purposely found a doctor that was very pro-natural birth. And she's one of the few that are known out here in Bangkok as being pro-natural birth. So when she said that I needed a C-section, it felt like, right, okay, I really must need one. And just for kind of double reassurance, I then rang my doula who was also pro-natural birth, but not just pro-natural birth, but pro doing it the way I wanted to do it. She knew my wishes. So she she speaks fluent Thai. So she spoke to the to the doctor and then she kind of came on the phone to me and said, yeah, you know, it is looking like that. There was an option potentially to wait a few days and see how things progressed, if it got worse or, you know, obviously it's like if babe could stay in there a bit longer. As I say, I was just under 37 weeks. So we knew that hopefully she'd be OK. But if she could stay in a few extra days, that'd be great. But then with that, there was always the risk that, you know, things could progress and get worse. And actually, I d- as I say, it was all such a, a whirlwind the following morning. But when she when the babe did come, the doctor came in and said it's a really good job she came because of. And I can't remember now, but it was like X, Y, Z, you know, these things had clearly progressed. So I'm really pleased that I did take their advice and, and not continue to push for No, I want, you know, I want to keep her in. So yeah it was all a bit crazy so I didn't have the doula with me but she was there kind of I knew she was outside I knew the second she could be with me she would be she stayed she helped with feeding she helped with other things she came back to visit me the next day she was just a fabulous support amazing and that's what I was going to ask what is your support network so how were those first sort of couple of weeks who did you have there who was helping 
Yeah. I was so, so lucky, like to the point that obviously other than family, I don't want my family to be disappointed when I say this, but I think I was actually surrounded by more people here um, than I would have been back home. Now, I think that's a mix of one, being an expat, being away from home and two, people knowing I was doing it on my own and really stepping up to, to help me out. But I just like overwhelmingly so was surrounded by this amazing support network. I, a lot of my friends, were, you know, in this expat circle, a lot of us are colleagues and friends and live you know in the same building or nearby a lot of them were over helping me out the the night I came out from hospital because obviously I hadn't planned a c-section I hadn't even thought about the fact that my nappies were down on the floor my underwear my pajamas everything that I couldn't get to because I couldn't physically bend and you know they came they rearranged my flat at the time, Effie was really struggling with feeding and I soon moved from breastfeeding onto formula feeding. But even then, we were syringing three millilitres of um, milk into her mouth and then she'd sick it all up. It was just those first few days were a struggle in terms of, you know, Effie and her growth because she'd also lost a lot of weight. She was tiny, tiny. I think she was four and a half pounds at one point. So it was a little bit scary. But the friends were just great coming around, keeping me calm, helping me out, but also just being, yeah, uplifting. And, you know, I felt really good spirit wise. I think there was one day everyone had said, you know, the emotions will kick in. And I kept saying, I'm fine. I'm loving it. All is great. And then all of a sudden, I can't remember which day it was, but the emotions, the hormones, they kicked in. And I had one day where I was just crying, but laughing through it. It was really surreal because I was crying saying, everyone said this would happen. And just, yeah, crying for no apparent reason. But so in terms of friends, just absolutely amazing. And then also things like we have a WhatsApp group that was set up for mums that were due in spring. So lots of um other mums kind of due in April May time we'd all been in touch we were all having meetups and things as I said this this cafe run by a midwife and a doula they offer classes and advice sessions they have meetups and so it was all just I, I just felt as I say overwhelming um support from all directions and then even though family weren't here, you know, having the joys of social media and, and this, you know, video calls and, and all of that enabling me to kind of feel that they weren't that far away. So, yeah, it was absolutely fabulous to the point that I'm now thinking, oh, if I had a second, I don't think I'd want to do it back home because the support was so good here. So, yeah, definitely well supported. And if that continued to date, do you still feel like sometimes people say at the beginning, everyone made an effort and then everyone sort of goes back to their yeah. real life. Do, do you feel <laughs> like you've still got that good support? Network? Definitely. I am. I'm so fortunate. I've also had lots of family visit from the UK. So in these last few weeks, they weren't here for the first few weeks, but just these last few weeks, they've been kind of in and out visiting. We're now going into the summer holidays. So a lot of my friends will go. But I've, I've honestly just felt like I've absolutely loved it. I've also been really fortunate that I've been able to pay a nanny to come and help me. The original plan was to have a nanny from August when I returned to work. So I go back to work this week, but then it's the summer holidays after that. So I'm really fortunate with, although the maternity is very short, I'm fortunate with timings and that it's soon the, the summer holidays. So I was planning on getting a nanny from August, but I was struggling to find one that kind of wasn't ready to start for a few months. So I'm really lucky that I ended up just a few days before I ended up giving birth. I found one and I just thought, you know what, I'll just pay her full time, even though I don't need her full time. And then 
thank goodness I did because then after my c-section she was great you know looking after me and look taking Effie off me for a few hours a day so I could catch up on some sleep so yeah that kind of support has continued and and friends have just been you know and to the point that I've been saying you know I don't need it but you know it's been great because they've just been popping in sending me voice notes asking if I want shopping and I said in those first few days I just I can't thank them enough even even to the point that a couple of them took it in turns to stay overnight with me and I kept saying you know I don't need it I'm fine but they're like we're not we're not you know we're not asking you we're telling you that we're here and they stayed in my spare room but they were just there just in case you know and I still remember one of my friends took Effie and she was you know she was working full time at the time but she just took Effie off me for an hour and a half in the middle of the night uh, and I got this hour and a half sleep and I just remember thinking like oh my gosh I was a new woman after an hour and a half sleep which is just crazy because to most people they think an hour and a half but how yeah I'm just forever grateful for those those friends that have been around but yeah continue to be. I think that is one of the benefits of expat life, isn't it? Because your friends are like your family because you spend so much more time with them and um, definitely a bonus. And with you living in Thailand, and like you say, it it wasn't really, you know, they don't really offer IVF to single women. Did you get any judgment from anybody throughout that or did you mainly feel supported? Um, Not really. I mean, I don't know how much a lot of people know, certainly from kind of my friends and my colleagues, everyone has only ever shown like complete support. The parents at school wouldn't know the details, you know, of my background. They just know that I've had a baby. They've been amazing sending sending gifts and I've just been so, so looked after or, you know, and Effie has been so looked after. Mm. So I don't know about judgment, really. I think people might be shocked, you know, if, if I say, oh, actually, I've done it on my own. That, huh? How? I mean, the most interesting thing was when I had to get the birth certificate translated. So you have the birth certificate that's given to you in Thai but then you need a translation into English so that you can apply for a passport. So, and I definitely plan on, you know, traveling lots with Effie. That's, you know, one of the reasons I've done it abroad is to continue my travels. So it was important that I got a passport for her early on. So week one, one of my first outings from the house was to go and get this birth certificate translated. Now, the fact I had to even go out to do this was a joke in itself because everybody else got theirs translated at the hospital. But I was told because the father wasn't present, I had to go and almost explain why the father wasn't present. So everybody else left the hospital having, you know, filled in all of the forms, got the English translation. I had to go to this office and I went to the office and I had this lady with me. I don't know what her role was specifically, but she came from the hospital with me and maybe she was like from some sort of agency but she was asking me for the sake of this form kind of what the background was and she was saying so where is the father so I obviously couldn't give her too much information but I said oh I had IVF and she was like but we need all of his details we need his details so I said oh but in the UK I obviously didn't say that my IVF was out here so I said but in the UK IVF you know it's anonymous I don't have the father's details And she said, oh, but then you can't get the birth certificate. We need the father's details. 
So then I just had to make out. I was an absolute hussy. <laughs> I'd been having the time of my life and I just didn't know who the father was. And apparently that was the right answer. So I just said, I, I just don't know. <laughs> and, and yeah, they were happy with that response. So luckily the, the certificate doesn't state that. It just says unknown, but that, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> but that is classic, like society in general, that I hear that so many times that for some reason, it seems to be more acceptable to have had a one night stand in 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 some yeah. people's eyes than it does to have gone into like a, you know a solo mum situation. Yeah. it's strange, isn't it? How it really is. And out here, as I said, Thailand's so progressive in so yeah. many ways. You know, we've just had this huge pride celebration through the streets and, you know, they're really fighting for same-sex rights and all sorts of things going on. But then certain things just still blow their mind. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was judgment or just absolute kind of ignorance to the situation. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say that that's my only experience so far where I've mm-hmm. kind of felt like, oh, I don't really know how to answer this one. Whereas most of the time people have just been really supportive and, and not asked um, too many questions and and just out of interest you it's not um permitted for single women to have IVF what about same-sex couples no you've literally the only the only way you can have IVF here is if you are a a straight married couple having fertility problems so then they will support you so you could be a straight couple and unmarried you could be a same-sex couple you know any variation it's just not possible unless you're a married straight couple I mean I would hope in the future that would change it's definitely available or IUI is available I've had friends that have had success in other Asian countries like Cambodia I think Laos might be another one um and they're good options because you can actually ship sperm in so you know how people have used sperm banks from is it is it Denmark that's quite popular yeah 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 so yeah so there's been people that have already kind of purchased their sperm in Denmark and then they've shipped that in and then had success in in those Asian countries but you obviously have to time it in with work and holidays and you know having time off so I I just I can't believe how fortunate I was really to be in Bangkok to have a clinic almost on my doorstep that was that was willing to help me out. The the stars are aligned and uh, what are you planning for your summer holidays what's on the agenda so I'm staying here which is huge for me because usually I'm ticking off many a country but this time having a chilled one here in Thailand and just having different visitors come here but also just getting into kind of routines and as I say the nanny's here so some days I might ask her to be here so I can go off and, and explore and other days do things, things with Effie and tell tell the nanny she's not needed here but just trying to get my head back into into more of a routine before returning to work properly in August yeah and how are you feeling about returning to work very mixed because at the moment when everyone says to me like how are you coping you know you don't look like you've got a newborn baby you look super chilled and I have been I've literally I've had a strap to me and still been going to work parties and my friend had a leaving party the other day and was there dancing glass of wine in hand you know Effie attached to me and I've, I've genuinely I've been absolutely fine how I've coped on such little sleep I've no idea it just shows that your body just soon adjusts doesn't it you think that you need all these hours of sleep but somehow we get used to it but I 
just I'm fully aware that I'm going to feel very different when I'm back at work one the emotional pull of kind of leaving her all day every day but also the the actual work and and being exhausted so I'm just going to take it as it comes if I need to hire a night nanny some nights to help me out through some of the night shifts I'll have to do that I'm hoping not to because I just really want to be in my own routines Uh, but if I need that there's that as an option and in terms of missing Effie I know that that's going to happen but I've just got to remind myself this this was the way of becoming a mum for me um and and yeah back home I'd have had a longer maternity but I just don't know how I'd have physically afforded everything and you know and also what a lifestyle she's going to have here I'm, I'm not sure how many more years I'll do out here but what a great start to life you know doing all the traveling and enjoying the sunshine and you'll be the time that you do have together because you've got that support and you're able to put that support in place hopefully that will be more quality time as well because you you know because you've got that support around you Um, definitely definitely and and I know like any teachers back home will say like your evenings aren't your evenings your weekends aren't your weekends and here as a whole there's obviously some times of the year that are really busy and some evenings and weekends that you have to work but as a whole I'm usually usually my work-life balance is is better out here so yeah I'm hoping for really good quality time with her And you talked about having two embryos remaining in storage. So did you go into this thinking that you might like to have a sibling for her? Yeah, in an ideal world, I definitely, definitely like more. Realistically, with, uh, you know, timings and age, I think it will be one more. It also means I'd need to stay out here because it will be, you know, it's not that they can transfer the embryos from here back home to the UK. So it means a few more years out here. But, you know, if not, I'm very much aware that I feel like she's a miracle in some ways, you know, and I'm really, really happy that I've got her. I feel very, very fortunate. I would love to give her a sibling further down the line. I also, through my IVF, continued dating because I was so, I don't know, it's not that I was um, thinking it wasn't going to work. I just didn't want to think either way. So just, I was so adamant to continue living um, my life as it was um, and unsure kind of how long it would take or if it would work at all. So I met someone absolutely when I was least expecting it, like, oh, by the way, I'm living out in Thailand and oh, I'm going through IVF. <laughs> so that was all a crazy time. But that yeah, that's actually continued and been absolutely marvelous throughout throughout up until now it's been almost a year now so long distance is a challenge obviously but it depends where that goes you know what direction that goes into you know if I was still solo my choice to have a second child might you know might be a different choice to to if I end up still in a relationship with somebody and and sharing that experience together so yeah hopefully fingers crossed there'll there'll be a second baby in the future but I'm also aware that you know from my other two embryos who knows you know I might have success there or I might not and I'm not sure if I didn't have success with my other two I'm not sure you know I I could potentially be like 38 39 by then I don't know whether I would go through the whole process again one emotionally and physically also financially so many different things I don't know whether I just kind of see myself as really lucky for, for getting Effie. And I think it's it's so interesting that you talk about dating because, you know, I, when I chat to people, someone said to me the other day, I mean, am I writing off meeting someone for like the next 10 years? And I was like, where have you got 10 years from? I mean, <laughs> I can understand where people might say three years, you know, the year of being 
pregnant and then the first couple of years Mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't like that their mind isn't really in dating but 10 is excessive (laughs) so (laughs) but I do hear people like you've just said say no I just carried on because you sometimes meet people when you least expect it so is she in the UK did you meet her when you were back home yeah Yeah. we met last summer so it was it was it's it's that thing of fate, isn't it? What's meant to be? Because by then, had my original transfer gone ahead, I would have been pregnant. And had I met, you know, would I have met somebody? Had I been physically pregnant at that point? Probably not. Because, right, as I say, my reasons for continuing dating were thinking, like, this might not work. You know, I, I don't know whether it'll work. And I don't want to put off my life and put dating whilst waiting to see if IVF would work. So um, I continued dating and met her. And then, uh, yeah, it was weeks later that the IVF was successful. So it's been quite an interesting journey. But, I, you know, we've just had that honesty, that open communication from the beginning. She knew that that's what I was going to go through. And what's been nice is it, although she, obviously there's distance between us, but she's been part of that journey. And, you know, we've ended up between us. She's been out here a lot. I've been back home a lot. So she's come out. She's spent some time with Effie already. She'll be back here over the summer holidays. So, yeah, it's just kind of that. Who knows? We're both really, really optimistic. She's very understanding that, you know, this was very much my journey. And I, you know, I went through an awful lot before the point that I even met her. So she's, you know, she's very understanding of that and not wanting to just leap into things, but also, you know, wanting to be part of that as much as I want her to be. So amazing it is unbelievable isn't it like when exactly what you say when you least expect it you know who knows what can happen and I think the other thing is I speak to a lot of people who say well I've met someone and so I either have to stop or if I carry on we have to break up and actually it's really nice to hear a story to say well we're just trying to figure it out you know exactly and I think if you've met the right person and it's meant to be they'll they'll want to be part of that journey anyway and and maybe it maybe it's slightly different to me with dating a woman that I don't know maybe if I was you know if I was going through the process and was dating a man maybe he'd have different feelings on you know wanting that child to be biologically his and maybe that would add an extra dynamic whereas if you're dating a woman, they would have been going, if they wanted children, going through a different journey to have them anyway. So it's just kind of that different routes to motherhood, I suppose, and different different families. Yeah, but what I really love is the being open-minded about it because I think I've done a lot of research on, you know, all of our views on how things should be. And we spend so much time thinking about how it should be. And that sometimes trips us up when something isn't, as how we think in our heads it should be whereas actually lots of the times we can make things work if we think a bit more outside of the box and we think how is there a way to make this work I guess it's it's challenging to say what is their role with my child Mm and working through that I guess is something that needs to be worked through but like you say if you've met the right person you can you can hopefully figure it out Definitely. And I think from just genuinely from listening to your podcast, because before before I was even going through this journey, I was <laughs> tagging you in many things and through through listening to listening to them on different beaches around the world, and things, thinking <laughs> this is really what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, and just hearing other people talk about, you know, how they've started a family, they've got blended families or all these different family units. And exactly it is it is just that of kind of 
deleting what we thought life was going to look like and 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 unfortunately we do all have these preconceived ideas thanks to Disney and and all of the others of how our families should look like and and the reality if you want you know if you want happiness it is about being open-minded isn't it and knowing that your reality might might not be a Disney movie <laughs> and actually Disney the bane of my life so because Daisy's obsessed with Disney and we went to watch <laughs> a princess show she's obsessed with princesses and and my approach to Disney, rather than to not let her go because the joy she gets from going is, I don't want to, to miss out on that, but I try to emphasise the friendship element of Disney because what I do like is the princesses are all besties and they all look out for yeah. each other and they all... Um, so <laughs> she said to me, are there any princes here? I was like, Daisy, we don't... The princesses don't need princes. Look, they're having fun. They're in a pop band. They're doing their own thing with their girlfriends. I like try and emphasise the friendship element which I think is super important and and try to de-scope <laughs> the prince <bit>. yeah <laughs> because yeah it is it is so hard I think the best podcast episode I've ever recorded on this was with Marianne Power it's on my thriving solo podcast and uh, it's so many people have messaged me saying oh my goodness I loved listening to Marianne Power speak mm-hmm. because she talks all about how deeply ingrained how it should be is and if you can just unpick that and you can figure out not what society thinks not when your parents think not what your friends are telling you just what you want and how you can make your situation work we would all be a lot happier and she's really made me think of like throwing away the rule book a bit and be because for Mm -hmm. me I always thought that I want to get married have children you know, meet a partner, get married, have children. And now I'm like, actually, I would like to date someone, but I don't think I'd want to move in with them. And you know how we've got a really set, you date someone, then you move in together, then you get married. And now I'm like, who made up those rules? There's so many different ways to do this where you can meet someone. So I I love sort of exploring those different avenues and seeing how other people have done it and being inspired by and I think as a society, we are getting there. We are becoming more open-minded. Like even 10, 20 years ago, a lot of these conversations wouldn't have been happening, would they? Or they would, but with a lot more judgment from certain people. And that judgment's still there in some ways, but I just think the direction it's going in is is the right one, isn't it? Absolutely. Brilliant. Any other factors that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to share? I don't think so. I think you've covered everything. Thank you. Brilliant. So what what we'll leave on is advice. So if you were to give any advice to someone currently considering solo parenthood, what would you say? I would just say, go for it. As simple as that. I would say, don't put your life on hold. Continue everything that you're doing and go for it because if it's meant to be it will work out and so will everything else alongside it amazing jess thank you so much thank you for having me if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and would like to access bonus episodes featuring donor-conceived people, psychologists and other experts, you can head over to my website, thestalkandi.com, to subscribe to the Thriving Solo Membership. 
For $2.99 a month, you'll get access to members-only episodes as well as the entire back catalogue. You'll get access to useful resources and a monthly community call, which are a great opportunity to meet people in a similar situation to you. On my website, you can also find more information about the coaching I offer. You can also follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi.com to get an insight into the realities of solo parent life.